please take a Bible if you brought your own and turn it to 1 Peter. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles in the pews, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, which is page 1015 there in these Bibles in the hymnal racks. We've been studying First uh, Peter this summer, off and on, and uh, reminding that he was a Galilean fisherman who became a disciple of Jesus. And he's writing to uh, persecuted believers. Uh, they were being oppressed in the society in which they were living. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that uh, I have taught it several times through the years. Uh, the last time was about seven years ago. But I've never felt the urgency with the change and the hostility in our culture now toward the Christian faith. I haven't felt the urgency as I did before. So it's a perfect book to study now because it asks the question, how can I live as a faithful follower of Christ in a, uh, in a hostile environment? So we'll begin in verse 18 of chapter 2 where he's talking about the subject of submission. He's dealt with that earlier, and now he continues with a particular sphere, and that is with servants. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to trusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, there is nothing in our nature that uh, sees this as anything else but repugnant and impossible. So we would pray now that you would Give us spiritual food to our hungry souls. Guide us and direct us in the way we should go. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we've studied the first chapter and chapter and a half of 1 Peter, we've seen that we as believers are aliens and strangers. A person is either in Christ or not. And I use the analogy, I said, if you ask someone, are you married? And they say, well, sort of. If something's wrong, that also means they're not married. Uh, because if you're married, you know it. And, the, and it's recognized by the state and by the Lord. And here, you, if you're a believer, you either are or you're not. And as believers, we are aliens and strangers, sojourners, he said, in this culture. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we are swimming upstream uh, in the best of cultures because our, our citizenship is in heaven. So does being a Christian make any difference? Sometimes it's hard to tell here in the South whether it's genuine or not, when we say so many of the same things, but when the actions can look just like the world. The true Christian, yes, it will make substantial difference. And there's a powerful testimony, and that comes under the general umbrella of Christian submission, submission to authority. And so in verses 13 to 17, a couple of weeks ago, we saw him introduce this by saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. But the purpose behind it is to have a testimony in a time of darkness. 
that, as he said earlier, that unbelievers will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, that people be drawn to Christ through that. Well, this is a whole area of good works, is submission to authority. And he says the rationale in verse 13 is for the Lord's sake. It's not for your sake. It's not for my sake. It's not even for the authority's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. Now, to understand the concept of submission, you have to see it against the whole biblical backdrop. Um, God created all that exists, and he created it out of nothing, and he rules over all of it. And there is a structure of authority within his creation, and it's a hierarchy. It is not a democracy. And at the top of this structure is the sovereign God who rules and who reigns over all. And then he has delegated. He has delegated all authority in heaven and on earth to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so at the top, you might say, of the earthly hierarchy is the Lord Jesus. And then this structure comes down, and under him are emperors and kings and governors and those that were the terms of the, that day. And so it flows down. And so we, we don't like the whole concept of submission. It sounds demeaning, but, so we need to understand it. In the Bible, Satan is identified intimately with lawlessness, with breaking law. Um, when our ancient foreparents rebelled against God, that was an act of lawlessness. And therefore, every time we do not submit to the rules that plague us, you might say, we are casting our boat with lawlessness. And every time we go out of our way to submit, we bear witness to the one whose law stands above every law. Every time you obey your employer, a school teacher, the parents, and so forth, you give honor to Christ, whether you realize it or not, because he reigns over everything, over the universe. Now, here he's, we, we saw a few weeks ago, he's talking about being submissive to the governing authorities. We talked about government, that they bear the sword, according to the book of Romans, to recognize those who do good and to punish wrongdoers. And they bear the sword. They have the the power to carry out punishment, and they have the power to declare just war. Now, that's going to come back into play toward the end of this passage. Let me tell you about slavery in the New Testament times. When the New Testament was written, there was not much difference between slaves and the average free person in Rome. In fact, in the Roman Empire at one time, there were as many as 60 million slaves, and most came from conquered armies and conquered nations. And they were not just those who were to do physical labor. They did all labor. They were the doctors. They were the teachers. They were the musicians. They were the actors. They were the secretaries. They were the stewards. In fact, probably every free person, uh, children in their household, was taught and tutored by someone who was a servant. All of the work of Rome was done by slaves. The Roman attitude was there was no point in being master of the world and doing your own work. And so the, the citizens, the free citizens, tried to live in pampered idleness, thinking that the supply of, of labor, so they thought, would never run out. There's great evidence that the slaves lived within the confines of the master's household, perhaps on the top floor of the city house or the country villa. They dressed as free men, but they had no legal rights. Now, when we get to the New Testament, this is, the, the, this is one of the main objections that 
that critics have of Christianity because if you believe in Christianity, that means you have to accept the Bible as authoritative. And so this passage right here will be the first one in many cases that someone will say that the Bible can't be trusted because it's culturally bound by the very mention. And, and then you'll say, give me an example. And they will quote 1 Peter 2, 18. Servants be subject to your masters. Now, what do we find? We find in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul and here Peter do not condemn every form of servitude. But we find that the New Testament requires slaves to be treated with respect. We find that directly. It teaches the complete spiritual equality of both slave and free within the church community. And if you have in your lap a Reformation Study Bible, the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, which is a great study Bible, by the way, it's got this note with this verse. Such teachings as the spiritual equality of all people in Christ and to treat others with respect, such, te such teachings together with the general biblical defense of the poor and the oppressed, the biblical focus on the dignity of the human race, and the injunction against kidnapping served to undermine the institution of slavery as it is developed in the Western world and led to slavery's eventual demise through civil legislation. So as, as John Murray, the great professor from Westminster Seminary, said, the seeds of the demise of slavery are set in the, in the New Testament. They're there, and so that's what happened. The people of Peter addresses here is not the word for slave, it's the word for servant. And so it indicates, in fact, the Greek word sounds like domestic, it's domestikos, a domestic, someone that worked in the house. It's a servant who would be under the rules of the head of the household. Now, any Bible-believing scholar that studies this, and I looked at a whole stack of books, they all say that there are obvious applications in all spheres that come out of this passage. So if you think, wait a minute, this was something written to a particular group at 2,000 years ago, there's no application for me now. I'm going to tune out for the rest or just view this as a historical lecture. No, it's loaded with application for your life and for mine. So I'll transition from saying servant to employee and in all sorts of spheres where we are under the authority of another person. The principles remain. First, verse 18. I'm just going to walk through the verses Verse 18 tells us there were some masters who were good and respectful and gentle and considerate, and there were some who were not. They were harsh, and they treated people unjustly. And so he admonishes these believers now who were domestics in those households, be submissive to your masters with all respect, both types, the bad ones and the good ones, the good ones who are considerate and the bad ones who are harsh. Why? Verse 19, he gives the answer, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing. It is a commendable thing to endure cruelty and harshness while doing what is right. Now that's the point of this whole passage. For the rest of the verses through verse 25, it's just an expounding of this thought. It is good and right when you do good and have to suffer for it. If we submit because we're trying to honor the lordship of God, then such such then that such submission even in times of harshness and cruelty is commendable. Why? Because there's a higher authority. If you've worked within uh, 
a, a workplace where you answer to a manager and then they answer to someone else. You may be in that kind of situation now. Um, here's the deal. Here's the, where the Christians see it. As I submit, I'm not submitting to that manager over me. I'm submitting to Christ. See, as a Christian, that's what, that's what this is saying. Our submission is to the Lord. You just happen to be the person telling me what to do. And so I'm not in bondage to you. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. Now, if we don't understand that, submission in any sphere almost makes no sense. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, Peter's concern here is not trying to perpetuate a lifestyle within the Roman Empire. He's not trying to just give social stability out of fear of anarchy or something like that. No, he's concerned with how we are to serve God in our various circumstances as believers in an oppressive culture. That's the background to all of this. There's value in God's sight if we suffer unjustly because such treatment provides a golden opportunity to show forth the uniqueness of the Christian faith. By patiently enduring unmerited abuse, a person shows the opposite of the person who is in bondage. They are demonstrating their freedom. Because I belong to Christ, I can submit to you. It sounds like a paradox. If we bear the evil patiently, we demonstrate the freedom we have in the Lord. Because we're showing the confidence we have in God's justice, since he does not need, since the person does not need to avenge himself. He's willing to suffer for his master for the Lord's, his master's unjustness for the Lord's sake. Now, justice and submission all come together. Here's why. Um, John Blanchard wrote a book on the doctrine of hell, and the first sentence was, hell has fallen on hard times. But um, he, when you talk, when I talk to people, and they say, oh, you believe in hell? Yeah, I believe the Bible teaches that. It's ridiculous. You know, what a cruel, what a harsh, what an arrogant. And I said, it does sound that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Do you want justice to be done? Oh, sure. I mean, do you like to see the innocent um, suffer and, not, and no vengeance is taken? No, I don't like that. Well, let's imagine right now that over there in northeast Iraq, that here are these Christians that have fled for their lives and... Let's say these ISIS soldiers are, uh, they've already killed a lot of innocent people, children and others, and, and they're going about their merry way, pursuing their course of action, and they're heavily armed and heavily financed and so forth. And, and let's say they've killed, this, this guy, my particular guy, has killed 25 children, you know, over the past three weeks. Just imagine, or maybe older people, doesn't really matter, but, but has murdered these people. And let's say that this Monday, one of our uh, laser guide, uh, guided missiles sends him and his buddies into the next world. Do you think, I mean, should he have the same existence as someone who's innocent? There's not a thinking person that would say they would. I said, so you want justice, right? But if you don't believe in hell, there will be no justice. There will be no justice. Uh, or if justice is only what can be doled out in this life through the courts, only a small, small minority will actually uh, face justice. And the great inequities of that uh, with legal systems and money and, and so forth. So what the Bible teaches and what's been taught is that God is a God of justice. He will bring about justice. 
That's why I can submit in a harsh environment because the story isn't over. Am I making sense? Are y'all with me? Can you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, okay. It's a friend of mine. He's never heard me preach. (laughs) If you can understand it, they can understand it. So that's how we can submit. The The servant then can submit because I'm answering to the Lord, and you may do wrong to me, but you're going to pay for it one day, but it's just not up to me. Right after the first service, immediately people come up with the exceptions, and I was met by somebody at the door. You mean to tell me that these kids that are, you know, the, you know, the human trafficking today, they ought to just submit? Absolutely not. That's not what's being taught here. Well, what if there's something immoral or un- illegal being done? You call the police. We've already been through the part on the government. They bear the sword. They bear the sword. It's not for me to bear the sword against the person, but there is a lawful place under their submission that they are to bear the sword. Let's move on. Verse 19. Now he broadens it to all people who suffer unjustly. The word in verse 20 is commendable or credit. When we suffer unjustly, we must be mindful of God. We must be conscious of God. A few weeks ago, we we saw the Latin phrase that the Reformers loved, Coram Deo, before the face of God, that you and I live every day. We should be before the face of God, fully conscious that God is watching and God is involved. That means you make it a habit to be thinking of the will of God and that the eyes of the Lord, as Proverbs says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, seeing the evil and the good. I am told that the Frenchman who sculpted the Statue of Liberty finished out the top of the head, although it was before air flight, because he knew that God would see it. And no one else would. We should live where we recognize that God sees all. Now, that's a terrifying thought, depending on what you're doing. I used to read that verse in Proverbs, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, seeing the evil and the good, and I thought, oh, that's a scary thought. But when you're suffering, it's a comforting thought. God sees this. God knows this. I'm not alone in this. God sees. And verse 20 says, there's no credit with God for doing wrong and then being punished. In other words, if you're lazy and irresponsible in your workplace and you lose your job or you're demoted, that's not commendable before God. You don't, you don't show great immaturity and irresponsibility and say, man, look, they, they fired me. I'm suffering unjustly. No, that's not what it's speaking of. If, if you're lazy as a student and don't uh, apply yourself to your work and you, and, and you flunk out, uh, that's not commendable. That's not what it's talking about. But if you do good and suffer as a result, you receive credit with God. I wrote in an upper-level speech class on the, on the First Amendment on gender issues, men and women and speech things. Uh, when I was in college, I wrote a paper that I worked very, very hard on. And, um, but the teacher, to make a point to a few of us that were males in the class, (laughs) uh, wrote mocking comments all through my paper. Uh, When I use an analogy like the eyes, the eyes of this model see this. No, I said, through this model we see this. And she said, do models have eyes? It was the most derogatory, unprofessional, unacademic thing I'd ever gotten. And when she handed it back, I knew her point. Her point was, how does it feel to be discriminated against? That was exactly, she was was making a point along with the class to me and the few other guys that were in there. 
Now, that's a small taste of unjust suffering, just unjust to make a point to be docked on a grade like, like that. Now, there's some credit there in trying to serve Christ in your schoolwork as a believer, as I was at the time. I don't know what sounds kind of minute to me. But when it says here, if you do good and suffer, you receive credit. Credit. Luke 6.33 says almost the same words. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Now, probably nothing goes against our human sinful nature than this teaching. Everything within us wants to justify and defend and to save face. Barb and I are awaiting in a few weeks our 12th grandchild. And the oldest is 10. When our daughter's van pulls in the driveway, we scatter. <laughs> Run for your life. And it's, it's entertaining to watch how our natures are played out when there isn't much uh, uh, maturity as to how to cover your tracks. And who left that popsicle right there on the floor? You know, the one standing right next to it. Did you? Well, he did it. He did it. No, you did it. No, no. But, but, but. I mean, it's everything within us especially if we're unjustly accused. Oh, but, but, I mean, it's just natural. Verse 21, why does God give his commendation on those who suffer? For this you have been called. The word calling is the Latin word for vocation. This is your vocation. Enduring suffering is a part of the Christian's calling in life. Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, to even begin to approach this, we have to have a doctrinal base, and that doctrinal base is the sovereignty of God. That's the teaching that God controls all things. And that's why Peter began on that note back in the first sermon, the introduction, chapter 1, first paragraph. He starts right off with those who are elect, exiles, chosen in God. He goes right into the sovereignty of God, which means God is over all things, in control of all things. Because if you don't believe that, then you can't endure unjust suffering because the feeling is this is out of God's control. Jerry Bridges has an excellent little book. If you've not read anything on the subject, this came out in 2006. It said, is God really in control? And then I love the subtitle, Trusting God in a World of Hurt. But excellent short little book. But here's a paragraph. Philip Hughes, from his book, I quote, Philip Hughes writes, Under God, however, all things are without exception fully controlled despite all appearances to the contrary. Nothing is too large or small to escape God's governing hand. The spider building its web in the corner or Napoleon marching his army across Europe are both under God's control. So suffering becomes bearable, unjust suffering becomes bearable when we understand that we are in that state by the providence of God. Therefore, it is our calling. God has brought this about. It is our vocation. So if you fall ill with a terminal disease, you can curse the impersonal fates that have brought it about, or you can see it as the providence of God. There is nothing worse than to suffer and to grieve and to go through pain for no reason. For no reason. I came across a letter last Saturday in a filing cabinet. 
for those under 20, these were these metal things that had paper. Um, and it was a letter written from a woman that I don't recall her name right now. I met her years ago. I was called to a house where a woman had died and uh, the funeral relatives were starting to arrive for the funeral, which was to take place a couple of days later. I don't even remember the names involved. I, I couldn't remember the faces. But I, I was called there, and I met a woman who had traveled here. She had flown in from another state, and the rest of the family members were gone. And this woman and I talked, and it only took about five seconds to realize this person was coming unglued over the death of this relative. She was, she just wasn't grieving. She wasn't discouraged. She was in despair, uh, like hyperventilating. And, I, and she did not know Christ. And so I talked to her about Christ. And I, said, I, I said, lady, you got to have some kind of foundation to stand on. You, are, you feel all alone in this. Well, she was very receptive. And a day or two later, Joanne Floyd, who we buried a couple of months ago, led her to Christ. And Joanne called me and told me about it. And this was a letter to me that she had written, this woman, oh, four, six weeks later after that event. And it was telling me kind of what Laurel said, all the changes that had taken place, like my life has changed. It was telling me a church she had visited out in her home state. And the encouragement, I thought, that is what... The Psalms say, He lifted me out of the miry pit and put my feet uh, on, on steady ground. And that's what had happened. There's nothing harder, I think, than to suffer pain or grief for no reason. And so he goes on, and he tells us why we're called to suffer in verse 21, but Christ calls, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now he's going to transition, as I'll do for the next couple of minutes, on Christ. And the idea here is the servant is not above his master. If Christ, our master, suffered, why should we expect anything less? Verse 22, Peter adds a citation. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Have you experienced being slandered? Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? In R.C. Sproul's book on 1 Peter, he tells this, I remember a time when as a boy I was taking an exam in a science class. In the middle of the exam, the teacher accused me of cheating. I felt violated and offended because I had not been cheating. I suffered an injustice, and I hated it. But I never stopped to think of how many times I had cheated but had not been caught. Jesus never cheated. He never deceived anyone. He never treated anyone unjustly. He never sinned. See, if, if we were to do a little survey in here and ask people that we've grown up with or known for years, hey, tell me some bad things, oh, Joe did. Tell me, some, tell me some embarrassing things, some sinful things Sally did over there. We wouldn't have a hard time coming up with lists for each one of us. And then if they couldn't write the list, we could write it on ourselves. That's why Jesus said that uh, I've never sinned. I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. He said that. And so even at his trial his mock trial, what did the authorities have to do? They paid false witnesses to make up things about him. We wouldn't need false witnesses, would we? Couldn't they find somebody that could say, he did this, he did something wrong? And yet they paid false witnesses to say, well, I heard him say he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. 
So the cross of our Lord was the worst injustice of all of human history. So here's this perfectly innocent man who's put to death, suffered the injustice at the hands of men so that the Father's justice could be satisfied for the guilty. And now he directs, Peter directs our attention to the example, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He calls us to do the same, not to return evil for evil. Is there anything harder? I don't think so. So when he suffered, he did not threaten. He committed himself to the Father. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now this is describing, now Peter's describing how we're made right with God. He quotes from Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, it foretold, that was 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah foresaw the suffering Messiah. And it goes into a very detailed description in that chapter about the life of Christ, about, uh, about the death of Christ on, the, on his crucifixion. And in Isaiah 53, he says, By his wounds you have been healed. Now, I realize it, having a disabled child... I've heard that verse used so many times because I've read a lot of books and I've talked to a lot of people about faith healing, miraculous healing, and so forth. And that verse, by his wounds you have been healed, becomes a bedrock foundational verse for the word of faith movement. If you read anything on healing from Kenneth Copeland types, others, that school of thought, that is a pivotal verse. In their minds, they're saying that on the cross, Jesus, in his death, he, he healed every sickness, every disease. And now today, if we believe that, if we trust that, then we can apply that healing. Now, I know it may make some of you irritated. The verse has nothing to do with that, with physical healing. Here's what the verse is about. It's about spiritual, being made right spiritually with God. When Jesus was beaten by those whips, they left awful wounds on his back which looked like stripes. Those were the stripes of punishment. And by those stripes, we escape punishment for sin because he was our substitute. So God put my sin on Jesus. Here's Jesus on the cross. God put my sin on him. He transfers my guilt onto Jesus. And then when he dies as punishment for sin, the penalty for sin then God has punished my sin in him in my place. So by his wounds you are healed. That's what, that, that's what Isaiah was foreseeing and prophesying, and that's what Peter's referring to here. It's not talking about physical healing. Yes, and someone after the first service, boy, that's an astute group. <laughs> after the first service, someone said, yes, Chip, but there will be ultimate healing. Of course there will. In heaven there will not be no disease. It will be complete healing, the best healing. But this passage does not offer a blanket promise of healing for sickness. God has seen fit in only two cases in the Bible that we know of to transfer someone from this life to the next without the process of death. Enoch and Elijah. Two. <laughs> two out of the billions who have lived through history. Most succumb to physical illness. Lastly, come out of time. Verse 25, very comforting words here at the end. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus said he was the good shepherd. In John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Remember after his resurrection, he he told Peter, uh, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. But what I want to focus on for just the last moment is that word overseer. He is the overseer of your souls. It's the word to peer into, to watch. He looks intently. He knows every step we take. He knows every pain we feel. We are called to imitate him because we've been returned by the shepherd to the shepherd. So if you're suffering unjustly, believer, in the workplace, in a school, the hands of a coach, In a marriage, and you think nobody knows, nobody sees, I'm all alone. He is saying here, the overseer of your soul sees it. And he is watching intently with concern. The clearest example I know of in the scriptures is in Acts chapter 7, when the first person is put to death for following Christ. A man named Stephen He is born testimony before the same court that condemned Jesus. And if you think deacons don't know Scripture, if you read chapter 7 of Acts, there's over 50 Old Testament references that he calls to mind on his feet in a trial. The guy knew the Scriptures. At the end of that, he calls these people to repent, and the court is furious and demands that he be punished by stoning. But before the stoning begins, chapter 7 says, Stephen, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's not just the impressive analogy of the Son of Man standing, the only place in the Bible that mentions that, or rather than seating, almost like a standing ovation. But what I thought of is he sees this. He is watching Stephen might have thought, no one cares, I'm all alone. Look, where is God when it matters? And yet the heavens open and he sees Christ watching it all. God is watching. Do you know Christ today? Have you accepted the invitation that Isaiah gave 700 years before Christ, that Peter's giving here, where he said all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all sinned against God. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity or the sins of us all to fall on him on the cross. If you believe that, If you trust that, then you belong to him, and you have a new life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you that the people in this room, that some are suffering uh, various forms of injustice, maybe recently, maybe right now, maybe it will happen soon. We pray that you might glorify yourselves through those situations. Give these brothers and sisters wisdom how to show submission to you in those difficult situations. And we we pray in Christ's name. Amen.